Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis Chapter 3 John A. Robertshaw John Aldington Robertshaw Professor of Physiology in the Medical School was rather deaf, and he was the only teacher in the University of Winnemac who still wore mutton-chop whiskers. He came from Back Bay. He was proud of it, and let you know about it. With three other Brahmins, he formed in Mohalis a Boston colony, which stood for sturdy sweetness and decorously shaded light. On all occasions, he remarked, when I was studying with Ludwig in Germany, he was too absorbed in his own correctness to heed individual students, and Cliff Clausen and the other young men technically known as Hellraisers looked forward to his lectures on physiology. They were held in an amphitheater, whose seats curved so far around that the lecturer could not see both ends at once, and while Dr. Robertshaw, continuing to drone about blood circulation, was peering to the right to find out who was making that outrageous sound like a motor horn, far over on the left Cliff Clausen would rise and imitate him, with sawing arm and stroking of imaginary whiskers. Once, Cliff produced the masterpiece of throwing a brick into the sink beside the platform, just when Dr. Robert Shaw was working up to his annual climax about the effects of brass bands on the intensity of the knee-jerk. Martin had been reading Max Gottlieb's scientific papers, as much of them as he could read, with their morass of mathematical symbols and from them he had a conviction that experiments should be something dealing with the foundations of life and death, with the nature of bacterial infection, with the chemistry of bodily reactions. When Robert Shaw chirped about fussy little experiments, standard experiments, maiden ant experiments, Martin was restless. In college he had felt that prosody and Latin composition were futile and he had looked forward to the study of medicine as illumination. Now, in melancholy worry about his own unreasonableness, he found that he was developing the same contempt for Robert Shaw's rules of the thumb, and for most of the work in anatomy. The professor of anatomy, Dr. Oliver O. Stout, was himself an anatomy, a dissection chart, a thinly covered knot of nerves and blood vessels and bones. Stout had precise and enormous knowledge. In his dry voice he could repeat more facts about the left little toe than you would have thought anybody would care to learn regarding the left little toe. No discussion at the Digamma Pi supper table was more violent than the incessant debate over the value to a doctor, a decent, normal doctor who made a good living and did not worry about reading papers at medical associations, of remembering anatomical terms. But no matter what they thought, they all ground at learning the lists of names which enable a man to crawl through examinations and become an educated person, with a market value of five dollars an hour. Unknown sages had invented rhymes which enabled them to memorize. At supper, the thirty piratical digams, sitting at a long and spotty table, devouring clam chowder and beans and codfish balls and banana layer cake, the freshman earnestly repeated after a senior, On old Olympus' topmost top, a fat-eared German viewed a hop. 
Thus, by association with the initial letters, they mastered the twelve cranial nerves. Olfactory, optic, oculomotor, trochlear, and the rest. To the digams, it was the world's noblest poem, and they remembered it for years after they had become practicing physicians and altogether forgotten the names of the nerves themselves. <laughs> Part 2 In Dr. Stout's anatomy lectures, there were no disturbances, but in his dissecting room were many pleasantries. The mildest of them was the insertion of a firecracker in the cadaver on which the two virginal and unhappy coeds worked. The real excitement during freshman year was the incident of Cliff Clawson and the pancreas. Cliff had been elected class president for the year because he was full of greetings. He never met a classmate in the hall of Maine Medical without shouting, How's your vermiform appendix functioning this morning? Or, I bid thee a lofty greeting, old pediculosis. With booming decorum, he presided at class meetings, indignant meetings, to denounce the proposal to let the Aggies use the north side tennis courts. But in private life, he was less decorous. The terrible thing happened when the Board of Regents were being shown through the campus. The Regents were the supreme rulers of the university. They were bankers and manufacturers and pastors of large churches. To them, even the president was humble. Nothing gave them more interesting thrills than the dissecting room of the medical school. The preachers spoke morally of the effect of alcohol on paupers, and the bankers of the disrespect for savings accounts which is always to be seen in the kind of men who insist on becoming cadavers. In the midst of the tour, led by Dr. Stout and the umbrella-carrying secretary of the university, the plumpest and most educational of all the bankers stopped near Cliff Clawson's dissecting table, with his derby hat reverently held behind him, and into that hat Cliff dropped a pancreas. Now a pancreas is a damp and disgusting thing to find in your new hat, and when the banker did so find one, he threw down the hat and said that the students of Winnemac had gone to the devil. Dr. Stout and the secretary comforted him. They cleaned the derby and assured him that vengeance should be done on the man who could put a pancreas in a banker's hat. Dr. Stout summoned Cliff as president of the freshmen. Cliff was pained. He assembled the class. He lamented that any Winnemac man could place a pancreas in a banker's hat, and he demanded that the criminal be manly enough to stand up and confess. Unfortunately, the Reverend Ira Hinckley, who sat between Martin and Angus Dewar, had seen Cliff drop the pancreas. He growled, "'This is outrageous. I'm going to expose Clawson, even if he is a frat brother of mine.' Martin protested. Cut it out. You don't want to get him fired. He ought to be. Angus Dewar turned in his seat, looked at Ira, and suggested, Will you kindly shut up? And as Ira subsided, Angus became to Martin more admirable and more hateful than ever. Part 3 When he was depressed by a wonder as to why he was here, listening to a Professor Robert Shaw repeating verses about fat-eared Germans, 
learning the trade of medicine like Fatty Faff or Irving Waters. Then Martin had relief in what he considered debauches. Actually, they were extremely small debauches. They rarely went beyond too much lager in the adjacent city of Zenith, or the smiles of a factory girl parading the sordid back avenues. But to Martin, with his pride in taut strength, his joy in a clear brain, they afterward seemed tragic. His safest companion was Cliff Clausen. No matter how much bad beer he drank, Cliff was never much more intoxicated than in his normal state. Martin sank or rose to Cliff's buoyancy, while Cliff rose or sank to Martin's speculativeness. As they sat in a back room, at a table glistening with beer-glass rings, Cliff shook his finger and babbled, "'You're only one it gets me, Mart. You know with all the hell-raising and all the talk about being commercial that I pull on these high boys like Ira Stinkley. I'm just sick of commercialism and bunk as you are.' "'Sure, you bet.' Martin agreed with alcoholic fondness. You're just like me. My God, do you get it? Doughface like Irving Waters or heartless climber like Angus Dewar. And then old Gottlieb. Ideal of research. Never being content with what seems true. Alone. Not caring a damn. Square-toed as a captain on the bridge. Working all night. Getting to the bottom of things. That stuff. That's my idea, too. Let's have another beer. Shake you for it, observed Cliff Clausen. Zenith, with its saloons, was fifteen miles from Mohalis and the University of Winnemac, half an hour by the huge, roaring, steel, interurban trolleys, and to Zenith the medical students went for their forays. To say that one had gone into town last night was a matter for winks and leers. But with Angus Dewar, Martin discovered a new zenith. At supper, Dewar said abruptly, Come into town with me and hear a concert. For all his fancied superiority to the class, Martin was illimitably ignorant of literature, of painting, of music. That the bloodless and acquisitive Angus Dewar should waste time listening to fiddlers was astounding to him. He discovered that Dewar had enthusiasm for two composers, called Bach and Beethoven, presumably Germans, and that he himself did not yet comprehend all the ways of the world. On the interurban, Dewar's gravity loosened, and he cried, "'Boy, if I hadn't been born to carve up innards, I'd have been a great musician. Tonight I'm going to lead you right into heaven.'" Martin found himself in a confusion of little chairs and vast gilded arches, of polite but disapproving ladies with programs in their laps, unromantic musicians making unpleasant noises below, and, at last, incomprehensible beauty, which made for him pictures of hills and deep forests, then suddenly became achingly long-winded. He exulted, "'I'm going to have them all.' the fame of Max Gottlieb, I mean, his ability, and the lovely music and lovely women. Golly, I'm going to do big things and see the world. Will this piece never quit? Part 4. 
It was a week after the concert that he rediscovered Madeline Fox. Madeline was a handsome, high-colored, high-spirited, opinionated girl whom Martin had known in college. She was staying on, ostensibly to take a graduate course in English, actually to avoid going back home. She considered herself a superb tennis player. She played it with energy and voluble swoopings and large lack of direction. She believed herself to be a connoisseur of literature. The fortunates to whom she gave her approval were Hardy, Meredith, Howells, and Thackeray, none of whom she had read for five years. She had often reproved Martin for his inappreciation of Howells, for wearing flannel shirts, and for his failure to hand her down from streetcars in the manner of a fiction hero. In college they had gone to dances together, though as a dancer Martin was more spirited than accurate and his partners sometimes had difficulty in deciding just what he was trying to dance. He liked Madeline's tall comeliness and her vigor. He felt that with her energetic culture she was somehow good for him. During this year he had scarcely seen her. He thought of her late in the evenings and planned to telephone her, and did not telephone. But as he became doubtful about medicine he longed for her sympathy and on a Sunday afternoon of spring he took her for a walk along the Chalusa River. From the river bluffs the prairie stretches in exuberant rolling hills. In the long barley fields, the rough pastures, the stunted oaks and brilliant birches, there is the adventurousness of the frontier. And like young plainsmen, they tramped the bluffs and told each other they were going to conquer the world. He complained, these damn medics. Oh, Martin, do you think damn is a nice word? said Madeline. He did think it was a very nice word indeed, and constantly useful to a busy worker. But her smile was desirable. Well, these darn studs, they aren't trying to learn science. They're simply learning a trade. They just want to get the knowledge that'll enable them to cash in. They don't talk about saving lives, but about losing cases. Losing dollars. And they wouldn't even mind losing cases if it was a sensational operation that'd advertise them. They make me sick. How many of them do you find that are interested in the work Ehrlich is doing in Germany? Yes, or that Max Gottlieb is doing right here and now. Gottlieb's just taken an awful fall out of Wright's Opsonin theory. Has he really? Has he? I should say he had. And do you get any of the medics stirred up about it? You do not. They say, oh, sure, science is all right in its way, helps a doc to treat his patients. And then they begin to argue about whether they can make more money if they locate in a big city or a town. And is it better for a young doc to play the good fellow and lodge game, or join the church and look earnest? You ought to hear Irv Waters. He's just got one idea. The fellow that gets ahead in medicine, is he the lad that knows his pathology? Oh no, the bird that succeeds is the one that gets an office on a northeast corner near a trolley car junction with a phone number that'll be easy for patients to remember. Honest, he said so. I swear when I graduate I believe I'll be a ship's doctor. You see the world that way. 
and at least you aren't racing up and down the boat trying to drag patients away from some rival dock that has an office on another deck. Yes, I know. It's dreadful the way people don't have ideals about their work. So many of the English grad students just want to make money teaching, instead of enjoying scholarship, the way I do. It was disconcerting to Martin that she should seem to think that she was a superior person quite as much as himself. But he was even more disconcerted when she bubbled, At the same time, Martin, one does have to be practical, doesn't one? Think how much more money— no, I mean how much more social position and power for doing good a successful doctor has than one of these scientists that just putter and don't know what's going on in the world. Look at a surgeon like Dr. Loiseau, riding up to the hospital in a lovely car with a chauffeur in uniform, and all his patients simply worshipping him. And then your Max Gottlieb. Somebody pointed him out to me the other day and he had on a dreadful old suit, and I certainly thought he could stand a haircut. Martin turned on her with fury, statistics, vituperation, religious zeal, and confused metaphors. They sat on a crooked, old-fashioned rail fence, where over the sun-soaked bright plantains the first insects of spring were humming. In the storm of his fanaticism she lost her airy culture— and squeaked, "'Yes, I see now, I see,' without stating what it was she saw. "'Oh, you do have a fine mind, and such fine—such integrity. "'Honest, do you think I have?' "'Oh, indeed I do, and I'm sure you're going to have a wonderful future. "'And I'm so glad you aren't commercial, like the others. "'Don't mind what they say.' He noted that Madeline was not only a rare and understanding spirit, but also an extraordinarily desirable woman. Fresh color, tender eyes, adorable slope from shoulder to side. As they walked back, he perceived that she was incredibly the right mate for him. Under his training, she would learn the distinction between vague ideals and the hard sureness of science. They paused on the bluff, looking down at the muddy Chalusa, a springtime western river wild with floating branches. He yearned for her. He regretted the casual affairs of a student, and determined to be a pure and extremely industrious young man, to be, in fact, worthy of her. "'Oh, Madeline,' he mourned, "'you're so darn lovely!' She glanced at him timidly. He caught her hand. In a desperate burst, he tried to kiss her. It was very badly done. He managed only to kiss the point of her jaw, while she struggled and begged, "'Oh, don't!' They did not acknowledge, as they ambled back into Mohalis, that the incident had occurred. But there was softness in their voices, and without impatience, now she heard his denunciation of Professor Robert Shaw as a phonograph— and he listened to her remarks on the shallowness and vulgarity of Dr. Norman Brumfit, that sprightly English instructor. At her boarding-house, she sighed, "'I wish I could ask you to come in, but it's almost supper-time, and—will you call me up some day?' "'You bet I will,' said Martin, according to the rules for amorous discourse in the University of Winnemac. 
He raced home in adoration. As he lay in his narrow upper bunk at midnight, he saw her eyes, now impertinent, now reproving, now warm with trust in him. I love her. I love her. I'll phone her. Wonder if I dare call her up as early as eight in the morning. But at eight, he was too busy studying the lacrimal apparatus to think of ladies' eyes. He saw Madeline only once, and in the publicity of her boarding-house porch, crowded with coeds, red cushions, and marshmallows, before he was hurled into hectic studying for the year's final examinations. Part 5. At examination time, Digamma Pi fraternity showed its value to urgent seekers after wisdom. Generations of digams had collected test papers and preserved them in the sacred quiz book. Geniuses for detail had labored through the volume and marked with red pencil the problems most often set in the course of years. The freshman crouched in a ring about Ira Hinckley in the digam living room while he read out the questions they were most likely to get. They writhed, clawed their hair, scratched their chins, bit their fingers, and beat their temples in the endeavor to give the right answer before Angus Dewar should read it to them out of the textbook. In the midst of their sufferings, they had to labor with Fatty Faff. Fatty had failed in the mid-year anatomical, and he had to pass a special quiz before he could take the finals. There was a certain fondness for him in Digamma Pie. Fatty was soft. Fatty was superstitious. Fatty was an imbecile. Yet they had for him the annoyed affection they might have had for a second-hand motor or a muddy dog. All of them worked on him. They tried to lift him and thrust him through the examination as through a trap door. They panted and grunted and moaned at the labor, and Fatty panted and moaned with them. The night before his special examination, they kept him at it till two, with wet towels, black coffee, prayer, and profanity. They repeated lists, lists, lists to him. They shook their fists in his mournful red round face and howled, Damn you! Will you remember that the bicuspid valve is the same as the mitral valve and not another one? They ran about the room, holding up their hands and wailing, "'Won't you ever remember nothing about nothing?' and charged back to purr with fictive calm. "'Now, no use getting fussed, Fatty. Take it easy. Just listen to this, quietly, will ya? And try?' coaxingly. "'Do try to remember one thing, anyway?' They led him carefully to bed. He was so filled with facts that the slightest jostling would have spilled them. When he awoke at seven, with red eyes and trembling lips, he had forgotten everything he had learned. "'There's nothing for it,' said the president of Digamma Pie. "'He's got to have a crib, and take his chance on getting caught with it. I thought so. I made one out for him yesterday. It's a Lulu. It'll cover enough of the questions so he'll get through.' Even the Reverend Ira Hinckley, since he had witnessed the horrors of the midnight before, went his ways ignoring the crime. It was Fatty himself who protested, "'Gee, I don't like to cheat. 
I don't think a fellow that can't get through an examination had hardly ought to be allowed to practice medicine. That's what my dad said. They poured more coffee into him, and, on the advice of Cliff Clawson, who wasn't exactly sure what the effect might be, but who was willing to learn, they fed him a potassium bromide tablet. The president of Digamma, seizing Fatty with some firmness, growled, I'm going to stick this crib in your pocket. Look here, in your breast pocket, behind your handkerchief. I won't use it. I don't care if I fail, whimpered Fatty. That's all right, but you keep it there. Maybe you can absorb a little information from it through your lungs, for God knows. The president clenched his hair. His voice rose, and in it was all the tragedy of night watches and black drafts and hopeless retreats. God knows you can't take it in through your head. They dusted Fatty, they stood him right side up, and pushed him through the door, on his way to anatomy building. They watched him go, a balloon on legs, a sausage in corduroy trousers. Is it possible he's going to be honest? marveled Cliff Clawson. Well, if he is, we'd better go up and begin packing his trunk. And this old frat'll never have another goat like Fatty, grieved the president. They saw Fatty stop, remove his handkerchief, mournfully blow his nose, and discover a long, thin slip of paper. They saw him frown at it, tap it on his knuckles, begin to read it, stuff it back into his pocket, and go on with a more resolute step. They danced hand in hand about the living room of the fraternity, piously assuring one another, He'll use it. It's all right. He'll get through or get hanged. He got through. Part 6 Digamma Pie was more annoyed by Martin's restless doubtings than by Fatty's idiocy, Cliff Clausen's raucousness, Angus Dewar's rasping, or the Reverend Ira Hinckley's nagging. During the strain of study for examinations, Martin was peculiarly vexing in regard to laying in the best-quality medical terms like the best-quality sterilizers, not for use but to impress your patients. As one, the digam suggested, Say, if you don't like the way we study medicine— will be tickled to death to take up a collection and send you back to Elk Mills, where you won't be disturbed by all us lowbrows and commercialists. Look here. We don't tell you how you ought to work. Where do you get the idea you got to tell us? Oh, turn it off, will you? Angus Dewar observed, with sour sweetness. We'll admit we're simply carpenters, and you're a great investigator." but there's several things you might turn to when you finish science. What do you know about architecture? How's your French verbs? How many big novels have you ever read? Who's the premier of Austro-Hungary? Martin struggled. I don't pretend to know anything, except I do know what a man like Max Gottlieb means. He's got the right method, and all these other hams of profs, they're simply witch doctors. You think Gottlieb isn't religious, Hinckley. Why, his just being in a lab is a prayer. Don't you idiots realize what it means to have a man like that there, making new concepts of life? Don't you— 
Cliff Clausen, with a chasm of yawning, speculated, praying in the lab. I'll bet I get the pants took off me when I take bacteriology if Pa Gottlieb catches me praying during experiment hours. Damn it, listen, Martin wailed. I tell you, you fellows are the kind that keep medicine nothing but guesswork diagnosis. And here you have a man. So they argued for hours after their sweaty fact-grinding. When the others had gone to bed, when the room was a muck heap of flung clothing and weary young men snoring in iron bunks, Martin sat at the splintery long pine study table, worrying. Angus Dewar glided in, demanding, "'Look here, old son. We're all sick of your crabbing. If you think medicine is rot the way we study it, and if you're so confoundedly honest, why don't you get out?' He left Martin to agonize. "'He's right. I've got to shut up or get out. Do I really mean it? What do I want? What am I going to do?' Part 7. Angus Dewar's studiousness and his reverence for correct manners were alike offended by Cliff's body singing, Cliff's howling conversation, Cliff's fondness for dropping things in people's soup, and Cliff's melancholy inability to keep his hands washed. For all his appearance of nerveless steadiness, during the tension of examination time, Dewar was as nervous as Martin, and one evening at supper, when Cliff was bellowing, Dewar snapped, "'Will you kindly not make so much racket?' "'I'll make all the damn racket I damn please,' Cliff asserted, and a feud was on. Cliff was so noisy thereafter that he almost became tired of his own noise. He was noisy in the living room, he was noisy in the bath, and with some sacrifice he lay awake pretending to snore. If Dewar was quiet and book-wrapped, he was not in the least timid. He faced Cliff with the eye of a magistrate and cowed him. Privily, Cliff complained to Martin. Darn him, he acts like I was a worm. Either he or me has got to get out of Digam. That's a cinch, and it won't be me. He was ferocious and very noisy about it, and it was he who got out. He said that the Digams were a bunch of bum sports, don't even have a decent game of poker. But he was fleeing from the hard eyes of Angus Dewar. Martin resigned from the fraternity with him, planned to room with him the coming autumn. Cliff's blustering rubbed Martin as it did Dewar. Cliff had no reticences. When he was not telling slimy stories, he was demanding, How much to pay for those shoes? Must think you're a Vanderbilt. Or... Did I see you walking with that Madeline Fox femme? What you trying to do? But Martin was alienated from the civilized, industrious, nice young men of Die Gamma Pi, in whose faces he could already see prescriptions, glossy white sterilizers, smart enclosed motors, and glass office signs in the best gilt lettering. He preferred a barbarian loneliness. For next year, he would be working with Max Gottlieb, and he could not be bothered. That summer he spent with a crew installing telephones in Montana. He was a lineman in the wire gang. It was his job to climb the poles, digging the spurs of his leg irons into the soft and silvery pine, 
to carry up the wire, lash it to the glass insulators, then down and to another pole. They made perhaps five miles a day. At night, they drove into little rickety wooden towns. Their retiring was simple. They removed their shoes and rolled up in a horse blanket. Martin wore overalls and a flannel shirt. He looked like a farmhand. Climbing all day long, he breathed deep, his eyes cleared of worry, and one day he experienced a miracle. He was atop a pole, and suddenly, for no clear cause, his eyes opened and he saw. As though he had just awakened, he saw that the prairie was vast, that the sun was kindly on rough pasture and ripening wheat, on the old horses, the easy, broad-beamed, friendly horses, and on his red-faced, jocose companions. He saw that the meadowlarks were jubilant, and blackbirds shining by little pools, and with the living sun all life was living. Suppose the Angus Dewars and the Irving Waterses were tight tradesmen. What of it? I'm here, he gloated. The wire gang were as healthy and as simple as the west wind. They had no pretentiousness. Though they handled electrical equipment, they did not, like medics, learn a confusion of scientific terms and pretend to the farmers that they were scientists. They laughed easily and were content to be themselves. And with them, Martin was content to forget how noble he was. He had for them an affection such as he had for no one at the university save Max Gottlieb. He carried in his bag one book, Gottlieb's Immunology. He could often get through half a page of it before he bogged down in chemical formula. Occasionally, on Sundays or rainy days, he tried to read it, and longed for the laboratory. Occasionally he thought of Madeline Fox, and became certain that he was devastatingly lonely for her. But week slipped into careless and robust week, and when he awoke in a stable, smelling the sweet hay and the horses and the lark-ringing prairie that crept near to the heart of these shanty towns, he cared only for the day's work, the day's hiking, westward toward the sunset. So they straggled through the Montana wheatland, whole duchies of wheat in one shining field, through the cattle country and the sagebrush desert, and suddenly, staring at a persistent cloud, Martin realized that he beheld the mountains. Then he was on a train. The wire gang were already forgotten, and he was thinking only of Madeline Fox, Cliff Clausen, Angus Dewar, and Max Gottlieb. Chapter 4 Professor Max Gottlieb was about to assassinate a guinea pig with anthrax germs, and the bacteriology class were nervous. They had studied the forms of bacteria, they had handled petri dishes and platinum loops, they had proudly grown on potato slices the harmless red cultures of Bacillus prodigiosus, and they had now come to pathogenic germs and the inoculation of a living animal with swift disease. These two beady-eyed guinea pigs, chittering in a battery jar, would in two days be stiff and dead. 
Martin had an excitement not free from anxiety. He laughed at it. He remembered with professional scorn how foolish were the lay visitors to the laboratory, who believed that sanguinary microbes would leap upon them from the mysterious centrifuge, from the benches, from the air itself. But he was conscious that in the cotton-plugged test-tube between the instrument bath and the bichloride jar on the demonstrator's desk were millions of fatal anthrax germs. The class looked respectful and did not stand too close. With the flair of technique, the sure rapidity which dignified the slightest movement of his hands, Dr. Gottlieb clipped the hair on the belly of a guinea pig held by the assistant. He soaped the belly with one flicker of a hand brush. He shaved it and painted it with iodine. And all the while Max Gottlieb was recalling the eagerness of his first students, when he had just returned from working with Koch and Pasteur, when he was fresh from enormous beer sidles and core-brooder and ferocious arguments. Passionate, beautiful days. Die Goldenzeit, the golden days. His first classes in America, at Queen City College, had been awed by the sensational discoveries in bacteriology. They had crowded about him reverently. They had longed to know. Now the class was a mob. He looked at them, fatty faff in the front row, his face vacant as a doorknob, the coeds emotional and frightened. Only Martin Arrowsmith and Angus Dewar visibly intelligent. His memory fumbled for a pale blue twilight in Munich, a bridge and a waiting girl, and the sound of music. He dipped his hands in the bichloride solution and shook them, a quick shake, fingers down, like the fingers of a pianist above the keys. He took a hypodermic needle from the instrument bath and lifted the test tube. His voice flowed indolently, with German vowels and blurred W's. This, gentlemen, is a 24-hour culture of bacillus anthracis. You will note, I am sure you will have noted already, that in the bottom of the tumbler there was cotton to keep the tube from being broken. I cannot advise breaking tubes of anthrax germs and afterwards getting the hands into the culture. You might merely get anthrax boils. The class shuddered. Gottlieb twitched out the cotton plug with his little finger, so neatly that the medical students who had complained, Bacteriology is junk. Your analysis and blood tests are all the lab stuff we need to know. Now gave him something of the respect they had for a man who could do card tricks or remove an appendix in seven minutes. He agitated the mouth of the tube in the Bunsen burner, droning, Every time you take the plug from a tube, flame the mouth of the tube. Make that a rule. It is a necessity of the technique, and technique, gentlemen, is the beginning of all science. It is also the least known thing in science. The class was impatient. Why didn't he get on with it? on to the entertainingly dreadful moment of inoculating the pig. And Max Gottlieb, glancing at the other guinea pig in the prison of its battery jar, meditated. Wretched innocent! 
Why should I murder him to teach Dumkopf? It would be better to experiment on that fat young man. He thrust the syringe into the tube. He withdrew the piston dexterously with his index finger and lectured, Take one half cc of the culture. There are two kinds of MDs, those to whom cc means cubic centimeter and those to whom it means compound cathartic. The second kind are more prosperous. But one cannot convey the quality of it. The thin drawl, the sardonic amiability, the hiss of the S's, the D's turned into blunt and challenging T's. The assistant held the guinea pig close. Gottlieb pinched up the skin of the belly and punctured it with a quick downthrust of the hypodermic needle. The pig gave a little jerk, a little squeak, and the coeds shuddered. Gottlieb's wise fingers knew when the peritoneal wall was reached. He pushed home the plunger of the syringe. He said quietly, This poor animal will now soon be dead as Moses. The class glanced at one another uneasily. Some of you will think that it does not matter. Some of you will think, like Bernard Shaw, that I am an executioner, and the more monstrous because I am cool about it. And some of you will not think at all. This difference in philosophy is what makes life interesting. While the assistant tagged the pig with a tin disc in its ear and restored it to the battery jar, Gottlieb set down its weight in a notebook with the time of inoculation and the age of the bacterial culture. These notes he reproduced on the blackboard in his fastidious script, murmuring, Gentlemen, the most important part of living is not the living, but pondering upon it. And the most important part of experimentation is not doing the experiment, but making notes. Very accurate quantitative notes, in ink. I am told that a great many clever people feel they can keep notes in their heads. I have often observed with pleasure that such persons do not have heads in which to keep their notes. This is very good, because thus the world never sees their results and science is not encumbered with them. I shall now inoculate the second guinea pig, and the class will be dismissed. Before the next lab hour, I shall be glad if you will read Pater's Marius the Epicurean, to derive from it the calmness which is the secret of laboratory skill. Part 2 As they bustled down the hall, Angus Dewar observed to a brother Digam, Gottlieb is an old laboratory plug. He hasn't got any imagination. He sticks here instead of getting out into the world and enjoying the fight. But he certainly is handy. Awfully good technique. He might have been a first-rate surgeon and made $50,000 a year. As it is, I don't suppose he gets a cent over 4000 Ira Hinckley walked alone, worrying. He was an extraordinarily kindly man, this huge and bumbling parson. He reverently accepted everything, no matter how contradictory to everything else, that his medical instructors told him. But this killing of animals? He hated it. By a connection not evident to him, he remembered that the Sunday before, 
in the slummy chapel where he preached during his medical course. He had exalted the sacrifice of the martyrs, and they had sung of the blood of the Lamb, the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. But this meditation he lost, and he lumbered toward Digamma Pi in a fog of pondering pity. Cliff Clausen, walking with Fatty Faff, shouted, "'Gosh, old pig certainly did jerk when Pa Gottlieb rammed that needle home.' And Fatty begged, "'Don't. Please.' But Martin Arrowsmith saw himself doing the same experiment, and as he remembered Gottlieb's unerring fingers, his hands curved in imitation. Part 3 The guinea pigs grew drowsier and drowsier. In two days, they rolled over, kicked convulsively, and died. Full of dramatic expectation, the class reassembled for the necropsy. On the demonstrator's table was a wooden tray, scarred from the tacks which for years had pinned down the corpses. The guinea pigs were in a glass jar, rigid, their hair ruffled. The class tried to remember how nibbling and alive they had been. The assistant stretched out one of them with thumbtacks. Gottlieb swabbed its belly with a cotton wad soaked in Lysol, slid it from belly to neck, and cauterized the heart with a red-hot spatula. The class quivered as they heard the searing of the flesh. Like a priest of diabolic mysteries, he drew out the blackened blood with a pipette. With the distended lungs, the spleen and kidneys and liver, the assistant made wavy smears on glass slides, which were stained and given to the class for examination. The students who had learned to look through the microscope without having to close one eye were proud and professional, and all of them talked of the beauty of identifying the bacillus as they twiddled the brass thumbscrews to the right focus, and the cells rose from cloudiness to sharp distinctness on the slides before them. But they were uneasy, for Gottlieb remained with them that day, stalking behind them, saying nothing, watching them always, watching the disposal of the remains of the guinea pigs, and along the benches ran nervous rumors about a bygone student who had died from anthrax infection in the laboratory. Part 4 There was for Martin in these days a quality of satisfying delight, the zest of a fast hockey game, the serenity of the prairie, the bewilderment of great music, and a feeling of creation. He woke early and thought contentedly of the day. He hurried to his work, devout, unseeing. The confusion of the bacteriological laboratory was ecstasy to him. The students in shirt sleeves, filtering nutrient gelatin, their fingers gummed from the crinkly gelatin leaves, or heating media in an autoclave like a silver howitzer. The roaring Bunsen flames beneath the hot-air ovens, the steam from the Arnold sterilizers rolling to the rafters, clouding the windows, were to Martin lovely with activity, and to him the most radiant things in the world were rows of test tubes filled with watery serum and plugged with cotton singed to a coffee brown, a fine platinum loop leaning in a shiny test glass, 
a fantastic hedge of tall glass tubes mysteriously connecting jars, or a bottle rich with gentian violet stain. He had begun, perhaps in youthful imitation of Gottlieb, to work by himself in the laboratory at night. The long room was dark, thick dark, but for the gas mantle behind his microscope. The cone of light cast a gloss on the bright brass tube, a sheen on his black hair as he bent over the eyepiece. He was studying trypanosomes from a rat, an eight-branched rosette stained with polychrome methylene blue, a cluster of organisms delicate as a narcissus with their purple nuclei, their light blue cells, and the thin lines of the flagella. He was excited and a little proud. He had stained the germs perfectly, and it is not easy to stain a rosette without breaking the petal shape. In the darkness, a step, the weary step of Max Gottlieb, and a hand on Martin's shoulder. Silently, Martin raised his head, pushed the microscope toward him. Bending down, a cigarette stub in his mouth, the smoke would have stung the eyes of any human being. Gottlieb peered at the preparation. He adjusted the gaslight a quarter inch and mused, Splendid. You have craftsmanship. Oh, there is an art in science, for a few. You Americans, so many of you, all full with ideas, but you are impatient with the beautiful dullness of long labors. I see already, and I watch you in the lab before. Perhaps you may try the trypanosomes of sleeping sickness. They are very, very interesting, and very, very ticklish to handle. It is quite a nice disease. In some villages in Africa, 50% of the people have it, and it is invariably fatal. Yes, I think you might work on the bugs. Which, to Martin, was getting his brigade in battle. I shall have, said Gottlieb, a little sandwich in my room at midnight. If you should happen to work so late, I should be very pleased if you would come to have a bite. Diffidently, Martin crossed the hall to Gottlieb's immaculate laboratory at midnight. On the bench were coffee and sandwiches, curiously small and excellent sandwiches, foreign to Martin's lunchroom taste. Gottlieb talked till Cliff had faded from existence and Angus Dewar seemed but an absurd climber. He summoned forth London laboratories, dinners on frosty evenings in Stockholm, walks on the Pincio with sunset behind the dome of San Pietro, extreme danger and overpowering disgust from excreta-smeared garments in an epidemic at Marseille. His reserve slipped from him, and he talked of himself and of his family as though Martin were a contemporary. The cousin, who was a colonel in Uruguay, and the cousin, a rabbi, who was tortured in a pogrom in Moscow. His sick wife, it might be cancer. The three children, the youngest girl, Miriam, she was a good musician, but the boy, the fourteen-year-old, he was a worry. He was saucy. He would not study. Himself, he had worked for years on the synthesis of antibodies. He was at present in a blind alley, 
and at Mohalis there was no one who was interested, no one to stir him, but he was having an agreeable time massacring the Opsonin theory, and that cheered him. No, I have done nothing except be unpleasant to people that claim too much, but I have dreams of real discoveries some day, and no— not five times in five years do I have students who understand craftsmanship and precision and maybe some big imagination in hypotheses. I think perhaps you may have them. If I can help you, so. I do not think you will be a good doctor. Good doctors are fine. Often they are artists. But their trade, it is not for us lonely ones that work in labs. Once I took an M.D. label— in Heidelberg, that was. Herr Gott, back in 1875. I could not get much interested in bandaging legs and looking at tongues. I was a follower of Helmholtz. What a wild, blithering young fellow. I tried to make researches in the physics of sound. I was bad, most unbelievable. But I learned that in this veil of tears there is nothing certain but the quantitative method. And I was a chemist, a fine stink-maker was I, and so into biology and much trouble. It has been good. I have found one or two things. And if sometimes I feel an exile, cold, I had to get out of Germany one time for refusing to sing Die Wacht am Rhein, and trying to kill a cavalry captain. He was a stout fellow. I had to choke him. You see, I am boasting— but I was a lively curl thirty years ago. Ah, so. There is but one trouble of a philosophical bacteriologist. Why should we destroy these amiable pathogenic germs? Are we too sure when we regard these, oh, most unbeautiful young students attending YMCAs and singing dinkle songs and wearing hats with initials burned into them, is it worth while to protect them from the oh-so-elegantly-functioning bacillus typhosis with its lovely flagella? You know, once I asked Dean Silva, would it not be better to let loose the pathogenic germs on the world, and so solve all economic questions? But he did not care for my method. Oh well, he is older than I am. He also gives, I hear, some dinner parties with bishops and judges present, all in nice clothes. He would know more than a German Jew who loves Father Nietzsche and Father Schopenhauer, but damn him, he was teleological-minded. And Father Koch and Father Pasteur and Brother Jacques Loeb and Brother Arrhenius. Yeah, I talk foolishness. Let us go look at your slides, and so, good night. When he had left Gottlieb at his stupid brown little house, his face as reticent as though the midnight supper and all the rambling talk had never happened, Martin ran home, altogether drunk.